It would do all of us good to remind ourselves on occasion of just where we might be were it not for Christ. Open your Bibles this evening to Revelation chapter number 12. I have repeatedly mentioned the fact that I believe that... uh, The book of Revelation gives us four separate accounts of the tribulation period, each one giving us a different snapshot or picture or account of what's going to happen during that seven-year period. In chapter number six, we saw just a brief synopsis of the events of the period, and uh, then in chapter eight, remember we talked about chapter... 7 being a parenthetical chapter, just giving us aside information, really, although important, not related to the subject of the tribulation. And then in chapters 8 through 11, we had the second account, and now tonight we begin in chapter number 12 with the third description of the tribulation, and this one continues, I believe, through chapter number 14, and when we get there, I think you will will agree that there is a picture of the end of the tribulation period. This scene begins here with war against Israel, and it will end in chapter number 14 with war against the Antichrist. This chapter divides itself up into two parts. In the first five verses, we see the wonders. And then beginning in verse number 6 on through the remainder of the chapter, we see the writer speaking about the wars. So we see the wonders and the wars. Beginning in verse number 1, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, And she, being with child, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. The word wonder there comes from a Greek word that means a sign or a symbol. And it's important that we acknowledge that because of the fact that this tells us, the use of this word gives us an indication that the book of Revelation ought to be interpreted literally unless the Scriptures indicate otherwise. Certainly, there are instances uh, throughout the Bible, but especially in Revelation, where symbols are used. Whenever Jesus spoke about being the door and the water and the bread... We all understand that that is symbolic based on what the rest of the Bible teaches. And so whenever we come to these things that are mentioned here as wonders, we know that these are things that are to serve as signs or symbols and that we are not to take everything about it in a literal fashion. In the first two verses, notice the first thing he says about the wonder is the the woman. And the Catholics, of course, tell us that this woman is Mary. But if you look at verse number 6, 
And we'll look at it in more detail later, but verse 6 says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. In other words, speaking about the three and a half years. So we know according to this that it would not, it would not be Mary. So we can rule that out regardless of what the Catholics try to tell us. The Reformers said that this is speaking about the church. But we need to remember that the church did not produce the Lord Jesus Christ. He started the church. The church didn't start Him or produce Him. So only by looking at the description can we arrive at a conclusion that is scriptural. And notice the description here in verse number 1 and she's pictured as being in an, in an exalted position. You'll notice that by her garment. It says, clothed with the sun. And her crown, twelve stars, would evidently, I think, refer to the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember, in the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the wife of Jehovah. And we also know that in the Old Testament that God promised that Israel would bring forth the Messiah. For example, whenever he says there in in Isaiah chapter number 7 and verse number 14, uh, uh, that a virgin shall conceive, and it says unto us a sign, say a sign was to be given to the children of Israel. And then I want you to notice again in chapter number 9 of Isaiah, that it's very clear that he's speaking about Christ coming from the nation of Israel. It says in verse number 6, chapter 9 and verse number 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." And you can read the entire chapter, verse 8, The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, uh, as it is lighted, hath lighted uh, upon Israel. So again and again, we see that the promise was that Israel was going to bring forth the Messiah. And the Bible is full of verses that alludes to that. Even, even in Romans chapter number 9, where Paul is speaking about the foreknowledge of God and God predestinating things, and it speaks about the special privileges of Israel. Israel is not just any nation. It is a special nation. It is a nation that was chosen by the Lord. And we know, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, God said that he had set Israel like a queen. Now, keep in mind, God is the king, and he had set Israel like a queen before all of the other nations. He had decked her out with ornaments. That is, that he had demonstrated his greatness by the manner in which he had treated her and blessed her, and he set her as his queen before all of the other nations. So I think without a shadow of a doubt that whenever he speaks here about the woman, that this woman is clearly Israel. But notice, notice the child, because this is where our real attention needs to be, on the child rather than the woman, and there's no doubt about this, 
He's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 5. And she brought forth a man-child, now notice, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. So there's no doubt about this. You'll remember all the way back in Genesis chapter number 3, where the first Messianic prophecy was given, speaking about the seed of the woman. We've already talked about that during some of the Christmas messages, and we know that that speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the son of Abraham. He comes from the tribe of Judah, the star and scepter of Jacob. The Bible says he is the root and the offspring of David. And so again and again, he is described in terms that that are unmistakable, and he's described Notice here, as a man-child, that's a very important thing. A man-child, not just a child. It didn't say a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, period, end of story. But rather that, that the, the, the nation of Israel was going to bring forth a man-child. And the Bible goes on and tells us in describing the gifts, remember, he represents our Passover, as it were. He... He is the Lamb of God, the Bible says, without spot and blemish. He died in the prime of life when he was 33 years old. And so all of the, all of the Old, Testament, Old Testament typology matches perfectly with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice in verse number 4, it talks about his life being sought there as it speaks about, you know, the, the red dragon and that, that is Satan, as we'll talk about in just a little bit, and uh, how that Satan was ready to devour the child as soon it was, as it was born. We, we know that's what happened when Herod tried to destroy, you remember, all of the children two years, all of the male children two years and under. And uh, so here we see again uh, evidence identifying this as the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice in verse number 5, it says, He is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. The same thing that we just read in Isaiah chapter number 9. So again, we don't have to wonder who he's talking about here. That's definitely the Lord. But look in verse number 5 again. It says, And was caught up unto God and to His throne. Well, isn't that exactly what happened in Acts chapter number 1, verses 8 through 11? You'll remember there as he was standing there giving his final instructions to his disciples, and all of a sudden his feet left the ground and he ascended up back into heaven. The angel said, This same Jesus that you see go into heaven shall so come again in like manner as ye have seen him Go away. And so here again we see the evidence that this is speaking about Christ who God brought into this world through the nation of Israel. Now look at verse number 6 because here, still speaking about the woman, but here I want you to notice it speaks about a flight. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. There appears, now don't let this throw you, there appears to be a prophetic gap between verse number 5 and verse number 6, in which the entire church age that is, the age that we live in, is omitted. There's no reference to it. He goes from the 
from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ back into heaven, and the next thing that he begins to talk about after that is the nation of Israel fleeing for her life in the wilderness. And whenever you look at the details of this, it's obvious that it's speaking about Israel and obvious that it's speaking about uh, the tribulation period because of the number of days, which equals three and a half years. So here, here we see this this prophetic gap in between there. And maybe you're thinking, well, uh, but doesn't that seem a bit unusual? Well, it would if this is the only time that it ever occurred in the Bible. But the fact of the matter is it occurs in other places in the Bible where, where at one minute the writer, the prophet, whoever it might be, is speaking about one thing, and the, in the very next verse you jump from there all of the way over to the end times, let's say. What we need to remember is that whenever the prophecies were being given in the Old Testament, there were instances where even the prophet himself did not understand the message that he was delivering. He didn't have to understand it. He received the message by divine revelation, and God said, now, this is the message I want you to deliver. And so he is standing on one mountain peak, looking at another mountain peak, but he's not trying to describe everything that happens between here and there. And that, that's what we see here. What what he's telling us about here is the conflict between Satan and Israel. This is not a discussion about the life of Christ. It's not a discussion about the history of the church. That's that's that, that's not the subject matter that he's talking about. By the way, in Luke chapter number four, in verse number sixteen through verse number twenty, as the Lord speaks about the purpose of His coming and. And he talks about preaching the acceptable year of the Lord. And if you go back to Isaiah, I think it's in chapter number 61, and you read that, remember the Lord is quoting what was written about him in Isaiah chapter number 61. But whenever you come to the account or the quotation that is found there in Luke, Jesus does exactly the same thing that we find here. He just stops at a particular point there because it's not, it's not pertinent to the subject under discussion. And then he picks up again later. And so, so this shouldn't surprise us here in Revelation whenever we see this gap between verse number five and verse number six. And so, uh, at least it's my understanding, the best I can tell, that there is a gap there because it talks about the woman fleeing into the wilderness. Notice, and he tells us here that the time that she's going to be in the wilderness, 1260 days, that is three and a half years. So here's what we know, that during the tribulation, Israel is going to be persecuted. Now, the reason for that, of course, is because of the fact, as you know, uh, we've already talked about there's going to be 144,000 of those Jews that will be converted to Christianity. They are going to, they're going to do an evangelistic work like this world has never seen. And countless numbers of people are going to come to Christ as a result of their witness. Remember, at the very beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. 
supposedly, you know, all of a sudden he steps on the scene. He's got the answer to all of the problems in the Middle East, and he enters into a covenant with Israel. But we know after three and a half years, he breaks that covenant with them. And all of a sudden, he begins to persecute them. And here we see them being, now remember, Israel has been scattered, but they're going to be regathered. They're going to be persecuted, but they're going to be preserved. And this is a word of assurance that God is going to protect them during that three and a half year period. Now let's look at the red dragon that's mentioned In this, in verse number 3 and 4, And there appeared another wonder, another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born." Well, I think all of us automatically recognize the red dragon, of course, as being Satan. But there's been a lot of different debate, a lot of discussion, and different ideas uh, about, you know, this dragon. But it's obvious whenever you compare it to everything else that's said about Satan. Notice his rebellion there in verse number 4. By the way, this seems to to me anyway to have a reference to the original act of rebellion against God by Satan when it was cast out of heaven. And you can read that in Isaiah chapter number 14, Ezekiel chapter number 28. You'll remember that whenever he was determined he was lifted up with pride and all of a sudden he wanted to be as God and consequently he drew a great host of angels with him that followed him. Some believe that this has reference to Revelation 8 and verse number 12, where the third part of the stars are smitten here. But whatever the case is, it's a picture of his rebellion. And notice how, how he is described in verses 8, 9, and 10. He's called the great dragon. That speaks about his fierce nature. That's why I often say that Satan is not trying to just hurt you. He's trying to kill you. He's trying to destroy you. He doesn't want to just hinder this church. He wants to totally destroy this church. That's his mission. The great dragon, the fierce nature. And then notice he's called the old serpent. That speaks about his crafty character. We need to understand who we're dealing with when we're dealing with Satan. You know, because he, he is crafty, more subtle than all of the beasts of the field, you'll remember from the book of Genesis. And then he's called the devil. That means the accuser or the slander. The accuser of the brethren, the slander. He's called Satan. That means that he is an adversary. But notice, which deceiveth. That's his, that's his M.O., which deceiveth. Uh, you know, any time Satan tries to tear down, any time Satan tries to ruin a life, he always works through deception. You know, he he, he ne- never he never tells you the truth about anything. Jesus said he is the father of lies, 
And so from the very beginning, you go back to, you know, the temptation of Eve there and how he questioned the Word of God and twisted and distorted the Word of God. And we see it there and we see it all through the Bible. And that's what each and every one of us can expect to to experience in our life. So now, that brings us to verse number 6. And as we go on down through here, we see Satan's attack against Christ there in verse number 4. And now John calls our attention to two different wars. The first one he mentioned takes place in heaven. Look at verse number 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his archangels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevail not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And then he says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, and he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So here we see it's very clear that there is a war, he says, describing taking place in heaven, by the way, He talks about this in Daniel chapter number 12. And I heard a loud voice say in heaven, Now has come salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of the testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Evidently, evidently, this speaks about what takes place during the tribulation. This is not making reference to the rebellion and the fall that he mentioned earlier, the original fall of Satan. Now we see that Satan has lost his high position, and and although he has been cast out of heaven, the interesting thing is that in some way that, that you and I cannot understand, he presently has access to God in the sense that he is able to bring accusations against us to the throne of God. That happened with Job, by the way, and it happens with you, whether you realize it or not. Whenever we falter and whenever we fail, Satan automatically begins to bring those charges against us. Now, his realm of activity, notice we're talking about this war taking place in heaven. But surely we cannot imagine this taking place in the third heaven. But remember, Satan's realm is the atmospheric heaven. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. That's a very important phrase. He's the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. And it tells us here that when this happened, he's going to be cast out. Again, don't ask me to explain all of this. I can't explain it. I just know in some way in the atmospheric heaven above us, that is the abode and the realm of operation of Satan And he's going to be cast out of the atmospheric heaven, confined to the earth proper. And notice what happens. When that takes place, Satan knows that his time is short. In other words, his days are numbered. The time is up. And he understands that because of what uh, is happening. And so 
Consequently, what does he do? Well, he steps up his, his program against Israel. He begins to intensify his efforts to destroy the nation of Israel. In other words, his time is short, so he's going to do everything he can to reap havoc upon the earth. And it says, notice in verse number 12, it speaks about that his persecution will be with great wrath. And then, and then he tells us that he will persecute the inhabitants of the earth. And so this is what's taking place during the tribulation, especially the last half of it that's referred to as the great tribulation. The tribulation itself is seven years, but understand that the great tribulation, that time which Jesus said is unlike any other time in the history of this world, that's the last three and a half years of it. So now we see Satan confined to earth and uh, Now, all of a sudden, as a result of that, beginning in verse number 13, we see a picture of war on earth. And he tells us here, And when the dragon saw that it was cast upon the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Now, think about all of the persecution that Israel has already suffered down through the years. But during the last half of the tribulation, it's going to be worse than it ever was before. Israel will be persecuted. Verse 13. Verse 14, Israel will be protected. It says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness into her place, where she is nourished for a time and a times and a half. That's two, that's three and a half, by the way. And it's what we're talking about, the three and a half years. And it says she's nourished there from the face of the serpent. Now notice he says that she goes to her place. Many of the old timey scholars say this refers to Petra, the rose red city. And it's really a, an interesting place, although I've never never been there. I've read about it. I've seen pictures of Petra. And it's really interesting to think about Israel fleeing. And there's that long, narrow, I guess you would call it a gorge leading back into kind of one way in and one way out. And, and, And it talks about Israel here being given wings as a great eagle in some way transported in into this area, if that is indeed the place but wherever it is, it's some place where God is going to protect Israel during the tribulation. Isn't it amazing? Sometimes we wonder if God can really take care of us and really provide for us. And it's really amazing when you look at this and you see that during the worst period on the face of the earth, God's going to protect these people. God's going to take care of His own. Now, verse 15 and 16, not only are they protected from the persecution... But I want you to notice that they are preserved. Verse number 15, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of, out of his mouth. I've got, I've got to tell you, I have no earthly idea what all might be implied by these statements. A lot of the, a lot of, a lot of fellows have got it all figured out. 
And they tell us there as a flood, and and notice the phrase, out of his mouth, they consider that to be symbolic language. It's a slander campaign against Israel and how, how that Satan is going to spread the evil propaganda against them and so on and so forth. And they say that's what it's referring to. You know, I don't know. I read this and I have to ask myself, could this not, could this not refer here to a, a literal effort on the part of Satan to drown them? I mean, if they are indeed there in Petra, could it not be that he comes up with a plan that, well, I know how to get to them. We'll, we'll just drown them like rats. And, and, Whenever I, when I read the Bible, I don't have a hard time taking any of it literal unless the Bible, you know, forces me to do otherwise. But the interesting thing is, that being the case, whatever, whether you want to call it propaganda or a literal flood or whatever it is, notice that the earth just opens up and all of a sudden, all of a sudden the flood just drained away. In, in, in other words, the whole point, and look, don't lose sight of the point of the message. Don't get so worried about understanding all of the details, because let me assure you, people smarter than you and smarter than me have tried to figure all of this out, and they are just as confused as you are about it. They're just taking wild guesses most of the time. And the point is what is really important. Whatever, whatever that flood is, the fact is that God prevents it from harming them and he takes care of his own. And so Satan's effort has failed. Now, there's one important verse that I want you to look at before we, we end here this evening, and that's going back to verse number 11, because we often wonder how in the world... How is it that the children of Israel and, and God's people, not just the children of Israel, but all of those converts, all of the people of God during the tribulation, how in the world could they be successful? How could they carry on? You know, uh, why wouldn't they just curl up in a fetal position and suck their thumb, you know, and wait for the world to come to an end? Well, the Bible tells us that God's people, those that keep the commandments of God, it tells us that they are the overcomers, the overcomers. We don't have to live in defeat. In Christ, we can be an overcomer regardless of what the circumstances. But notice there are three things, three important things mentioned here in verse 11. Notice they overcame him, they overcame Satan, By the blood of the Lamb, (laughs) that's salvation, there's power in the blood, amen. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. Let me tell you, that's the only way you and I can ever experience deliverance from Satan. Paul said, of those that are unsaved, they're taken captive of the devil at his will. And there'll never be a time of liberation from that, that bondage until we put our trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. But notice there's more to it than that. And he says, and the word of their testimony. That would speak about their service. The word of their testimony. You see, every Christian has a testimony. If you've been saved, you can tell somebody else how to get saved. Right? 
I've had people call me on the phone. I remember years ago, I'll never forget it. Somebody called me, one of the church members calling me saying, would you come over and talk to my, uh, see, I believe it was her daughter, if I remember right, and an adult. Would you come and talk to her? She wants to be saved. And I, would you come and tell her how? You, you know, why wouldn't a parent jump on that opportunity you know, whenever whenever your child says, you know, I want to be a Christian, but I don't understand it, why why wouldn't you take advantage of that opportunity? Don't you call me. If you're saved, you know how you got saved. And if you know how you got saved, you can tell somebody else how to get saved. Amen. And whenever I say that, I don't mean that, that, you know, that I'm not available to help in any, any way that I possibly can. What I'm saying is, you don't need me. All you need is just your testimony and Jesus Christ. He's the one that's doing the saving. And so it talks about the word of their testimony. Don't you, don't you ever, don't you ever underestimate the power of your testimony. I mean, it has great power. And maybe with your coworkers, just sit down there, you know, over a cup of coffee and just, you might say something like this. Would you mind if I shared with you what what Christ did in my life? And, you know, most of the time they're going to say, well, I guess, you know, I, I guess it'd be all right. And you've got an open door and just tell them what the Lord did in your life and how that can happen in their life. So there's salvation and there's service through the word of our testimony. But then notice, not only that, there's the matter of sacrifice. He said, and they loved not their lives unto the death. They loved not their lives unto the death. You know, a lot of times we think about really loving God and being devoted to God. And I just wonder how many would show up for church next Sunday morning if all of a sudden we received a threatening letter saying, if you show up, I'm going to kill you. You know, if we thought if we thought that, that there was a chance that we might lose our life, I wonder how dedicated we might be to the Lord. Well, <laughs> these folks realized that, that that Satan wanted to kill them and was going to do everything within his power to do just that. But they loved not their lives unto the death. I, I love the way Paul responded to the elders at Ephesus there in Acts chapter number 20. And here they are, you know, they're, they're, they're having a spell, bawling their eyes out and begging and pleading. Whatever you do, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has shown us that they're going to arrest you, they're going to imprison you, they're going to persecute you, they're going to kill you. Don't go, don't go there. And I love what he said. He said, neither do I count my life dear. He said, none of these things move me. In other words, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let their threat stop me from doing what I know that I ought to do. And and each and every one of us ought to be devoted to the point. Remember earlier there in Revelation uh, chapter number 2 where it talks about those, be, be thou faithful unto death, not until death, unto death. Now, it's wonderful to be faithful until the day you die. That's one thing. But it's more wonderful to be faithful even when it costs you your life. Faithful unto to death. 
That ought to be the attitude of each and every one of us. And I'll tell you what, when Christians have that kind of a mindset, when we have that kind of a determination that we are not going to be stopped regardless of the cost, there is no limit, no limit to what God can do with the people like that. Aren't you glad? You know, we say, well, boy, we live in tough times, difficult days, and yeah, all of that is true, but it's going to get worse. And a lot of times we wonder, well, you know, how can, how can we make it? How can we survive? How can we keep going? Well, right here you have it, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, and by loving your life, uh, uh, even unto death, by the willingness to give your life, uh, that is, even if it costs you in death. And with that kind of an attitude, we can be successful regardless of the circumstances. Right? It doesn't make any difference how bad it gets. Because like the old saying is, you know, God plus one is always a majority. And boy, that's really true. You know, uh, somebody said, you know... Uh, God's on my side. Well, I'm more concerned about being on His side. You know, I, I want to be on His side because I know that if I'm on His side, I'm on the winning side as long as I put Him first in my life. So, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, next week we're going to pick up in chapter number 13 and continue on as He continues the picture of the tribulation. So, let's all stand together. Father, Tonight, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, we just pray that you might open our eyes and help us to have an understanding not only of the events that are going to transpire, but Lord, help us to leave here tonight keenly aware of your goodness and your greatness. Although it's not the tribulation per se that we will face tomorrow, Although it's not the persecution that is pictured here that we might face during the course of this coming year, each and every one of us will have our own battles, our own difficulties. And Lord, I pray that you'll remind us of this moment and that we'll think again about the power that is in the blood. And whenever we have failed and miserably in knowing that Satan is accusing us, remind us of the fact that the blood of Christ covers all of our sins. And let us, let us share that message through our testimony with others and help us, dear God, to not love ourselves to the point that we neglect our earthly responsibilities. So we just pray tonight that you'll use your word to accomplish your will in our lives. So we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen.